Morning everybody. My name is Grace and I have three Bible readings to read out. Lucky me. The first one comes from Genesis 11 verses 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Am I right in reading the right one? Yes. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth world, earth. The next reading comes from Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 to 19. On the third morning of the third day, sorry, on the morning of the third day there was a thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And the last reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Then the day of Pentecost came. They were all together. I'll start again. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in, their own, in our own native tongue, language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, 
we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have all had too much wine. Morning, everyone. I would wear these, but I think they're too pretty for me. <laughs> Thank you, Grace. Uh, I'm Etienne, and uh, yes, I get to talk for the next 20 minutes, 30 minutes, probably 30. <laughs> um, you've heard the story. I want to get straight into the question that I think is the question of the story. It comes out in the last part of the passage that Grace read to us. You know, obviously something very extraordinary happened to a group of people who were busy praying together. When we pray, extraordinary things happen. That's the first link that we can make. And at the end of it all, there's a crowd that stands by and they, they saw what happened and they asked the question. They asked the question, what does this mean? What does it mean? The, the, the Christian word for the event that Grace read to us in the last reading is, is, is Pentecost. You'll hear terms like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the day when God poured out. This is the language that, that, that is used here. And stay with me if you're new to church or faith. I'll explain it as best I can this morning that goes on here, and the question we have to ask is, what does this mean? What did it mean for them who were there on that day originally? What does it mean for you today, here, in your life? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And I'm going to suggest to you it means three things. Thankfully for me, it's three words that alliterates. Presence. Power and purpose. Presence, power, purpose. All right, let's go. Number one, presence. God wants every Christian, every child of his, everyone who would become a child of his, to experience his presence in their life. That's the point. I'm going to explain just some of the things that go on the verses there, just, just if you're new to church, even if you have gone to church for a while, and then I want to turn to four implications, four questions on this point for us. This is the biggest point of the three today, okay? Here's what we read. These folks gathered for prayer, Shortly after Jesus ascended, remember he told them last week, he said, I'm going to go to the Father, we talked about the ascension, and then wait until I will give the gift my Father has promised. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, if you're new to, if you're new to church, is, is, is called the Trinity, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's mystery, it's not three gods, it's one God, but in three persons. He is, if you would, a little community within himself. 
And the third part of that trinity, God promises he will pour out, Jesus promises once he is ascended, he will pour out, he will give to each and every single person who will come to him in faith. And this is the moment where that happened. So we read, what did that look like in the story? What seemed to be tongues of fire, separated, came to rest on each of them. That's the first element. And the other one is wind. Wind, often in the Bible, is used to describe the Holy Spirit. I will leave that for today. I can dig more there, but I won't. I want to focus on fire. What seemed to be tongues of fire. Every time God is represented throughout the Bible, fire is an image that, that, that goes with it. We see fire, if, you're, if you know the Bible, uh, a guy called Moses encounters God in, 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 a, in a burning bush, and it's God, the presence of God in the fire. Even before Moses, we have Abraham, with whom God makes a, a covenant, a promise. He says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless the whole world, I'm going to bless all you people here today. God makes a promise, and he seals that promise with a pot of fire. It's God's presence revealed in the fire. We see it later again in Ezekiel. And then very importantly, at Mount Sinai, that Grace read to us from Exodus, God meets all the people through whom he will give us Jesus, through whom he will bless us at this place called Mount Sinai. And he says to them, I will, I will, I will reveal my presence to you. And he comes down on the mountain in fire. Fire, God's presence. Now here's the thing about fire throughout all the Bible, God's fiery presence. Each time people encounter it, it's either, well, it's, it's, it's fatal because you can't step into the presence of God unless he allows you to and paves a way for you to be able to step into it. You, you me, every human being, sinful, we don't get to stand in the presence of God unless the right sacrifices are made. That happens for some select individuals all throughout the Bible. And even when it does happen, it happens only very few times, a handful of times. Now you get to this event in Acts. The fire, the presence of God comes down. And it separates, not on one, not on two, but on every single believer on that day. And it's not fatal. It's, it's not just few and fatal, it is many. And it is, it is life-giving and, and all the things that we talk about. And here's just the, the symbolism that we meant to get here is that all this, what seemed to be tongues of fire, it wasn't literal fire, symbolically God shows us very clearly that we now live in an age where he is putting his very presence into every single believer. Not just pastors, not just apostles, not just prophets, not just the big individual figures throughout human history, but in every single believer. It, it, is, a, it is such a big moment in God's process of blessing the world that we reach at this point in the story. Now, I, I, I want to ask Questions after your own thoughts that I hope you, pops into your thought, and if they don't, I, I will, I'll, I'll ask them and put them there. 
four questions that we need to, I think, just think about what, okay, that's what happened, great, that's, that's the, the, the theology or the, the Bible story behind it, but, but so what? What does that change? And, and, and what does it, here's the first question, what does it feel like? It's a valid question. If, if the, 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 the presence of God is, is coming to live in me, if I have received the Holy Spirit, if I am filled with the Holy Spirit, surely that must feel like something. What does it feel like? There's a famous story told by a, a British 17th century pastor. He, he tells the story of uh, uh, a father and a son whom he saw walking in a park and for most of the walk, they, they, they were just walking and the father was here and the son was there and they were spending quality time together. You know, it, it was really just that sort of languishing Sunday afternoon, sunny day, no wind, maybe this morning type of weather. And they, and they were just strolling along and at some point the father, uh, you know, just enjoy and as they were playing, you know, was just dropping down to his knee and he just, he just grabbed the son and he held that son, and, you know, and he picked him up, and he was, he was just spinning him around, and it was in his arms. And, and Thomas Goodwin, this British preacher, asks this question. He says, in that event, at, at which point was that boy more a son? Was he more a son of the father when he was walking next to that father, or was he more a son of that father while he was held? You say, well, that depends. Legally, it's no difference. <laughs> that boy is every bit as much a son of that father, whether he's held, whether he's not even in the park or not, he's a, fa- he's a son uh, of the father. Objectively, makes no difference. But subjectively, <laughs> experientially. Who can argue that when that boy is held, when he's in the father's arms, that is the place where he says, more than any other place on the face of the earth, I am safe. I'm confident. I'm not afraid. I feel loved. And there's a difference, right? There's a difference between being held in the arms and and any other place for, for a child and a father. Now, you ask the question, I asked the question, what does it feel like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It feels like that. It is the point where you as a Christian should know that you are held in the arms of a loving Father. Where you are not afraid, where you are safe, where you are secure, where you are comforted, where where somewhere in, in your experience, that becomes real. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about what that means, but let me just go to the Bible first, because some of you would ask the question. That's a nice story, nice illustration, but is it in the Bible? Does God actually say that? Or is this just a warm, fluffy, fuzzy, right? Let's read these together. I, I took them from a translation in the Bible that's, that's called the Message, and it's, sometimes it's very useful to get the gist of, of um, 
what goes on there. So I'm going to read three Bible verses to you. Um, please just hear them, take them, soak them in. The first one is from a time when Jesus Christ was baptised while he was on earth. Here's what happened. We read the moment that Jesus came up out of the baptismal waters, the skies opened, and he saw God's spirit. It looked like a dove descending and landing on him. And along with the spirit, a voice. This is my son, chosen and marked by my love, the delight of my life. Right? The great father talking about his great son. And he's holding him. <laughs> that was one of those moments in the life of Jesus. It wasn't the standard mode. He went through many times where he did not feel that, where he did not sense that. But this time he did. It was part of his experience of, 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 of a human being being loved by his father, right? Okay, you say, good, that's Jesus, but what about me? Well, what about you? Romans 8.16, this resurrection life that you received from God, that's if you're a Christian, it's not a timid, grave-tending life. It is adventurously expected, greeting God with a child like, what is next, Dad, Abba? Is the word. And, and by the way, if, if dad is a, is a bad experience in your life and a, dad, a bad word to use, um, think of mum. Think of the grandparent. Think of whoever it is in your life in whose arms you felt safe, loved, not afraid. Okay? I use dad because that's the Bible's image but it's not exclusive. So it's not spoiled for you. In fact, it's especially for you if dad was a bad experience or is a bad experience. So please, forgive me, I'm going to use the language, but, but I'm going to work with this image, but, but substitute it if you must because it's still true for you, right? What's next, dad? Uh, the term dad there in Scripture is, is Abba. No one would use the word Abba. It's a Jewish word. You know what that word describes to us? Intimacy. <laughs> Dad, um, in the park, Abba. That is the term. It is no other meaning you can add to that term. What, I use daddy, use mummy, use whatever you want to use. What's next, Dad? God's spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are. Father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. And the word know there in Scripture is not information, it's experience. It is experiential. There is something more than knowledge going on here. There is a deep, deep-seated conviction about who you are in the arms of a father. Next one. And that's not Jesus, by the way. That's Christians, any Christian. You can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as his own children because God sent the spirit of his son into our lives, crying out, Dad, Father, Abba. Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave, but you are a child? The job of the Holy Spirit is to tell you of the Father's love for you 
his delight in you and the fact that you are his child. John prayed it. The Holy Spirit answers it. That what you know in your head becomes real in your heart. And it is irrefutable. It can never be undone. It can never be changed. And you know it. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what it feels like. Again, and we'll, we'll journey with this later on in the series, this is not every day, all the time. It may start simple and even hard to recognize at first in your Christian journey, but it must grow. It will grow. It should grow. The depth of your certainty and conviction, your knowledge that you are a child of God, dearly loved, and how safe and affirmed you are in that place. Okay, that's the first First thing, uh, that's what it should feel like in an increasing sense. Number two, what difference does it make to my life if I am experiencing God as that loving Father more often and more deeply over the course of my Christian life? What difference does it make to me what should it change about my life? And I love the Bible here. You know why I love the Bible here? Because it gives us such great illustrations to work with as preachers. Did you notice the crowd as they looked at all of this? What was their response? They first asked the questions, what does this mean? But then they go, these people are drunk. <laughs> they're, they're sloshed. They have no other explanation for, for what goes on here because what they see is a bunch of people who are happy, who are joy-filled. A bunch of people who wear smiles on their faces, even though they should not. The truth is they were too happy to care. They were too, uh, too happy to be worried or angst-filled about what would happen to them for saying that Jesus rose from the dead. They, they, they already suspected then. I think it would be something that would give them death, but they were, they were too happy. Simply too happy. And you say, well, okay, well, how does that work? What, does that, uh, what do we get from that? What do we learn from that? There's another place in the Bible where, where, where a man called Paul talks to some, some, some Christian people and he says to them, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery instead. Be filled, literally get drunk with the Holy Spirit. Now, you know what? Here's the application. That in some way, what the Holy Spirit does to you is the same as what alcohol does to you. Except there's a big difference. And the Holy Spirit is much better. Here's how. Alcohol, alcohol is a depressant, Right? Uh, you say, well, I don't, I don't get depressed when I drink alcohol. I, I, get, <laughs> I get quite the opposite of depressed. I get very happy. Um, so I'm told, anyway, by, by, by others, of course. Um, you know, I, but alcohol is a depressant. You know how alcohol is a depressant? Alcohol mixes with your brain. I'm not a medical expert, but, but, but it, it depresses your brain's ability to sense reality. It numbs you. To reality. And because you're, you're numb to the reality of really what goes on around you momentarily, there is that sense of joy, that sense of happiness, that sense of a smile on your face. We get tipsy, we get happy. 
um, we can escape, perhaps, just the awful things that we know from the reality that surrounds us. And so therefore, you know, by depressing our brains, by numbing us from reality, there is a joy that we get. The Holy Spirit does the exact opposite. He doesn't numb you to reality. He makes you acutely sensitive to the greater reality that you are a child of God, that you are in the arms of a loving Father, that your position where you are held is so safe, is so secure, bears and brings you so much comfort that you can stand whatever it is in your life, whether it is the grief that you're facing, the fear that you're facing, the guilt that you're facing, squarely in the eyes, and you know that beyond that is a greater reality that is more true than what you see. And you know what that does to you. It puts a smile on your face. And you say, no, it's good. I'm intoxicated with the grip of that reality on my life. And I think that's what these disciples are doing. I think that's what the Holy Spirit does. So, so what difference does it make to get back to the question, are you overwhelmed with fear in your life? Are you a miserable person who only ever feels angry and bitter? Are you constantly complaining? Are you overwhelmed with grief? Are the circumstances or a circumstance in your life dominating you? You need the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you need the abiding, the enduring, intoxicating reality of the Holy Spirit and let him change what you see and give you joy even in the midst of the worst of circumstances. It's what he does. It's how he works. Again, there's ebbs and flows. But generally speaking, as we grow as children of God, that reality gets firmer and firmer and firmer. And the more we suffer, the greater its grip on our hearts become to say, it is well with me. The Holy Spirit, the difference he makes. If you do not have him, you will not make it. You will not make it through life's afflictions and suffering. Okay, that was the second so what question. Number three, how do I get it? How do I get it? I don't have it, but I want it. How do I get it? Come next week. Come next week. Uh, uh, there's, there's much to say. I mean, the crowd who sees all this in Acts, uh, Peter, one of the apostles, he, he gets up and he explains to them, they're not drunk, these people. They look like they're drunk, but they're not. I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what, what, what goes on. And at the end of his sermon, the first sermon, if you like, that you see in the Bible, the crowd asks, what should we do? In other words, how do we get this? And, and he answers them. And he explains to them the road that goes uh, with this. And, 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 and um, yeah. Next week we'll ask the question, if I am convinced I don't have it, how do I get it? If I, I'm not sure if I have it, what do I do? If I'm convinced I have it, but I haven't really felt this real sense of intimacy, we'll deal with all those sorts of things as we unpack it next week. I, I think I'm already at 30 minutes, so um, please do come, and do come with, with, with an invitation that it is for you, and you will grow, and can grow, and enter perhaps even for the first time this 
glorious life that God promises. We get it. We can get it. Okay, last question, and then I'll go to point two, which is very short. I've been told, you might think, I should never rely on my feelings to experience God. Is that correct? You know, you talk about feelings. What does it feel like to receive the Holy Spirit? That's particularly something perhaps in a denomination such as this, that has at various times in our history been somewhat frowned upon, sort of said, well, I don't really know. Shouldn't feel, shouldn't feel anything. Just believe. Just trust the facts. Um, what do we do with that? I want to go to a Christian scholar called J.I. Packer, who's very good. He says, uh, I'm not going to, I can spend much more time on this than I have. He says, your Christian life is like a, what's that? Yes. <laughs> it's a stool. I was hoping for a, I don't know, maybe a squid or a cuttlefish or something like that. But anyway, a stool. Um, there's three things that make up your Christian life. Um, uh, doctrine, that's the truth, that's what you know, that's the, 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 the Bible, the facts, the truth, the stuff that we, there is a head component, we need to understand and, and, and be reasonable, our faith is not something just completely unsentient, there's, there's facts and truth, we need to understand that, know that, hear that, believe it. Then there's experience, there is an experiential side to Christianity, it's not just all the head stuff, there's no room for experience, for for for. for Feelings, if I can use the word. It's one of the legs of the stool. P, practice. Faith without works is there. We live it out. We've got to do some stuff. It's got to change how we live, what we speak, what we, what we do, how we serve. Right? That, that's all part of the Christian experience. And these, that's a three-legged stool. Cut one of them out, your three-legged stool will collapse. All three is part of the picture. And then Packer goes on to say, here's what then often happens. You assess yourself for me here. Some Christians are using stick figures um, if, if you overemphasize, that's very light, um, doctrine, you know, you sort of become a little bit like, like this, this guy here, you know, um, massive head, but a stick figure body, very uh, undernourished um, body, just, just a lot of information, a lot of facts, a lot of love and all the, the hard debates and that sort of stuff, but very underdeveloped body, okay? Sometimes... It goes differently, um, you know, we, we, we get Christian people that look like this, you know. Um, all about the feelings, man, give it to me, I seek that experience, and I, that is what it is all about for me. Facts don't matter at all, and truth don't matter at all, and practice does, don't matter at all. And that's what we end up look like then, right? And then there are certainly major parts of Christianity... Oh, here too much, but you know, looking really like, like this, and it's it's really, you know, it doesn't really matter what you know or what you experience, or whether there's a genuine spiritual new birth and a sense of a childhood of God. Christianity is all about what we do. Essentially, this sends into activism and good causes, and and no matter what we believe or what we encounter, what we experience, ultimately, what God wants for us, obviously, balanced people. Grow proportionally. Our heads, our hearts, our legs, our arms. And, and the Holy Spirit, for this morning's passage, comes in and simply saying, he wants to grow our Christian experience. He wants to grow our heads, he wants to grow our hands, our feet, our arms. Like good children that develop well, proportionately, well-nourished.
Okay. Presence. God wants every Christian to experience his presence in their lives. Number two. Let's go. Um, oh, oops. Uh-huh. Power. God wants to give every Christian a powerful desire and ability to declare his wonders. See what happened to that crowd in that story? What was the result of, of actually encountering God's presence to the degree that they have there? They burst out <laughs> talking about God. Yeah, well, I, how can you not talk about God when this is who you are in him and he is in you? This, this becomes the degree to which we, we, we grow in, in our understanding and affirmation as children of God. We want to talk about him. And so they, they, this is very interesting there, break out in other tongues. We'll talk about the tongues in a minute. This, by the way, this is not the tongues you have in other parts of the Bible. This is, these are intelligible tongues. These are people who break out in speaking actual known languages at the time, um, like some of us might break out here, some speaking Tamil, some speaking English, some speaking Dutch at the same time. The other tongues you encounter in Scripture is an unintelligible tongue that the Spirit enables people to speak at sometimes, needs to be interpreted and shared and bless everyone who's part of that. That's not this one, okay? So clarify that. What were they saying in these tongues that they started to speak? Uh, the text simply saying that they were declaring the wonders of God. The wonders of God, Greek word is, is megaleia. It literally means the mighty works of God. Here's the bottom line for you, for me. You know, the Holy Spirit will give you, as you grow in him, a powerful and intoxicating obsession with what God has done in your life. He will. And we spent all of January talking about it. Organic outreach. That's why I don't have to say much. If you've been here January, this is it. The Holy Spirit wants to give you that desire to, within your language, the six styles, remember we spoke about them if you were here, whether you're confrontational, intellectual, testimonial, interpersonal, invitational service, that, that intoxicating grip to say, in whatever way God has called me to declare who he is, who he is to me, what he's done, I want to do it, and I want to declare it. And I want to share it. I won't say more. We'll get back to organic outreach stuff over time and months. Let's just leave it there. Presence of God is experienced. The power of God is given to declare. And here's the third point. Purpose. The purpose of God is to make a new world united in Jesus. You ever wondered why the many languages in this if you're a reader of the Bible. It's a strange thing to do for God, isn't it? Why enable all these people <laughs> miraculously to speak about the goodness of God and his love for them and all these different languages? And it's true that at that time there would have been, these are all Jewish people, by the way, but they live in different parts of the world and they go to Jerusalem for feasts and sacrifices and as they are all concentrated there, they hear in the different languages that they speak, even though they're all Jewish people, they hear about Jesus in their own language. What's the point? Why would God do that? Why, why such a bizarre, strange way of, of, of pouring out the Holy Spirit? What does he want to say to them, to us? What does it mean, that particular aspect of this whole event? Well, a whole lot, actually. We've got to go to Genesis, and that's why Grace read Genesis to us. Did you pick that 
when we read Genesis, sorry, there's no slide. Only a song. <laughs> sorry, Ryan, I'll, I'll go back. I, I did make a slide for that. <clears throat> did you realise that in Genesis, early on in God's process of blessing the human race, the human race is arrogant. The human race says, stuff God. Who does he think he is? We are God. And there's this symbolic picture in the, in the early story, in the early part of the process of God's blessing of humanity where they build this tower and, and they, they try and ascend in their own uh, self-sufficiency and all those things. And God, at that point, says it's good for humanity not to continue this until I brought to fruition my full plan of blessing when Jesus has come, when he rose, when the Spirit will be poured out. And so he comes down, he stops that, he stops the building of this tower, this growing of arrogance and pride and God-centeredness. And what does he use to do that in Genesis? Language. And what does he do over here in Acts? When Jesus came, Jesus died, forgiveness of sin, he's ascended, blessing has come. He says, this is the time to unite. This is the time to bring together. I'm going I'm I'm to bring this broken, fractured, violent, godless humanity together, and I'm going to bring them together in my son, Jesus. And the language just gets spoken. Instead of being divided, they come. They're brought. They're drawn. And in Jesus, you have this stunning picture here of all these tongues saying the same thing. Jesus is Lord. Do you know he still does that today? The most ethnically diverse organization on the human planet is the church. The Pentecostal church, to be more precise. If your church is not ethnically diverse, well, you've got to look at it. Okay? Because this is what God is doing. It is in Jesus that the hope for a fractured humanity in a fractured world lives. Do you know what the US needs? Do you know what we need as a country? Do you know what our world needs? Do you know where unity will come from? Do you know where peace will come from? The church. The cross. A humanity of every nation, tongue, tribe, united, drawn by one language. Jesus. The gospel. It is, it, is, it is nothing short of astounding to see the scale and the depth and the width and the wisdom and the glory of God at work in this event. Jesus wants to bring the world together. His purpose is to make a new world together, united in Jesus. A united pathway to life. A united marriage, if you're married. A united family, if you have a family. All right, let me finish by merely summarising. God wants his presence experienced in the lives of those he calls to be his children. God wants to give every Christian a powerful desire and ability to declare his wonders in their unique God-given style. God's purpose is to make a new world united in his son, Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit speaking in the language of of his gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning, firstly, in gratitude. And I confess that we take for granted so much of what so many 
in so much of human history have longed for, and we have it. Access to your incredible presence. Father, will you grow that in us? Will you let us truly, in a right, good, true way, experience your loving arms around us? I pray for those who need it desperately this morning. May they have it. I pray for those who have never experienced it. Lord, will you, will you call them? Will you draw them? Will you start it? I pray that you would prepare us, Father, for a response perhaps next week. And Father, I pray for our world that you would unite us, draw us, increase Jesus for your glory and for a humanity who desperately needs him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.